0: Today, the Supreme Court hears arguments over President Biden's student loan relief plan, which would reduce or erase loans for millions of people. It's Tuesday, February 28th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, the House Committee investigating the Chinese Communist Party meets for the first time today to examine U.S. relations with China.
1: We don't have a quarrel with the Chinese people, and the Chinese people are often the primary victim of CCP oppression and repression.
0: Also, the future for the Rohingya, five years after they were forced out of Myanmar in what's been called a genocide.
2: We lost our hope we would go back to our country with dignity.
0: And this hour, the desperate search for shelter in Turkey, nearly four weeks after the devastating earthquake. Snow throughout the day today, two to four inches expected in Boston, up to eight in Worcester. It's 7.01. Now the
3: news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A special House committee will meet tonight. NPR's Deirdre Walsh says the select committee is focusing on the strategic relationship between the U.S. and China.
4: Tonight's hearing is really meant to educate the American people about why U.S. policy towards China matters. The chairman, Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher, is planning a series of hearings, both in Washington, possibly in the region. He said they might travel to Taiwan but hold a hearing maybe in Guam. NPR's Deirdre Walls reporting. Although there are Democratic members of
3: the committee, it's not clear what kind of legislation could be proposed for President Biden to sign. The hearings also come as the Biden administration has ordered all federal agencies to remove the Chinese-owned video app TikTok from government devices. Fox Corp boss Rupert Murdoch says he knew that then-President Donald Trump's claims of election fraud in 2020 were baseless, but he didn't do anything to intervene and make sure Fox News hosts did not endorse those claims on the air. NPR's David Folkenflick reports on the latest evidence in a huge defamation case against Fox.
5: Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox over false claims the election tech company switched votes from Trump to Joe Biden. A Dominion attorney asked, did Fox's Maria Bartiromo and Jeanine Pirro endorse the false notion of election fraud? Murdoch agreed they had. Former Fox business host Lou Dobbs? A lot. Sean Hannity? A bit. Murdoch sought to separate them from Fox News and Fox Corp as individual actors. Even so, Dominion's filings show Murdoch's investment in editorial matters. Murdoch told Dominion's attorneys under oath, quote, I'm a journalist at heart. I like to be involved in these things. Fox News and Fox Court say that Dominion's argument violates the First Amendment, preventing journalists from covering outrageous claims by public officials. David Falkenflick NPR News.
3: In South Carolina, the prosecution in the double murder trial of disgraced attorney Alec Murdoch will present its rebuttal witnesses today. Murdoch is accused of killing his wife and son. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen reports Murdoch's defense lawyers called a family witness yesterday before resting their case.
6: After six days of testimony, the defense put Murdoch's brother John Marvin Murdoch on the witness stand. He told jurors he was close to his nephew, who often worked for him, and said the day after the murders he tried to clean up the bloody outdoor room where Paul was killed. John Marvin testified that as he did so, he spoke in his mind and out loud to Paul. I loved him and, and I promised him that I'd find out who did this to him. John Marvin says he has yet to find who killed Paul at his sister-in-law Maggie. Jurors are expected to tour the crime scene before ultimately deciding the fate of John Marvin's brother, Alec Murdoch. For NPR News,
3: I'm Victoria Hansen in Walterboro, South Carolina. On Wall Street in pre-market trading, Dow futures are higher. This is NPR.
0: From WBR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. It's snowing across nearly the entire area right now. When it's all done, areas east of 495 should see 2 to 4 inches. West of that could get 4 to 6 inches. The Snow isn't too heavy, but it is slowing the morning commute down a bit. For more on that, let's talk with State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver. Good morning.
7: Good morning, Rupa. Thank you for having me on.
0: So how are the roads right now?
7: So, in general, we're in pretty good shape. Uh, we, we have about 2,000 pieces of equipment out there treating roadways, and we had a pre-treatment strategy, so we were out there yesterday, too, to make sure that we weren't going to see too much ice build up. And so far, it's been going pretty well. I, I will say that conditions can be slippery in a number of areas, especially on those secondary roads and on, on ramps and off-ramps. And it, the further west you go, that the more conditions are a little bit more difficult with, uh, with the heavier snowfall they're seeing.
0: What do you see happening throughout the day?
7: So I think we're going to be in good shape for most of the morning. It's, uh, again, it'll be slow going until probably noontime when this starts to taper off a little bit and the snow uh, becomes a little bit lighter. So we've been really urging people, if they don't have to be on the road this morning, they should avoid doing so. If they do have to be on, really spend a lot of extra time because it will be slow going.
0: And then there's a lot of temperature changes happening tonight into tomorrow with melting and then freezing possible. Are you worried about that?
7: Yeah, so this time of year is always tricky with when dealing with uh, these late season kind of storms because you do get that fluctuation in temperature. So we'll have crews out for most of the day. We will bring them back out when the temperatures drop later tonight. And, uh, and again, as needed throughout the rest of the week, really to just put down salt and make sure that those uh, slippery conditions don't develop into anything serious.
0: And then we have another one coming later this week, right?
7: We do. Yep. We're keeping an eye on that one. So far, it's a little bit too early to tell how serious it's going to be. And I've seen some predictions thinking that it's going to be more rain than snow. But either way, we're ready. You know, we've, we've had a very light winter. We have a lot of crews that, that train for this all year long, and they're, they've been ready to go. So they've been waiting for a storm like this.
0: State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver, thank you for joining WBWAR's Morning Edition. All right. Thank you. We'll have more on the forecast coming up in a moment. First, the rest of your newscast. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says her office is searching for funding to maintain resources for those with unstable housing living near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard. The mayor told WBUR's Radio Boston yesterday she wants the state to boost funding for those resources. That includes money for the Roundhouse Hotel. Boston Medical Center will stop providing addiction services at the hotel at the end of March and housing there is slated to end in June. Do I wish that we had
8: support from other levels of, of government and, and funding sources so that these badly needed services could be a constant? It would make all the difference in the world.
0: Wu said that as of yesterday morning, 51 unhoused people were living in the Massenkass area. Boston City officials are taking up a plan to track guns that are taken by police. A proposed law would require the police department to put together information for each gun that's taken. That includes where the gun is from, the dealer of the firearm, and if the person who had it was licensed. City Council President Ed Flynn tells the Boston Herald the information will be used to help reduce gun violence in the city. It's 7:07.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at
0: DanaFarberBrigham.org. The Celtics fell to the Knicks 109-94 last night in New York. The Seas return home tomorrow to, pay the Cavalier, to play the Cavaliers. The Bruins topped the Oilers 3-2 last night in Edmonton. The Bees will visit the Calgary Flames tonight. And at spring training in Florida yesterday, the Red Sox beat the Twins 4-1. The Sox will play the Marlins tonight. Snow throughout the day today. It's mixing with rain in some areas. Accumulation-wise, 1 to 3 inches on the Cape, 2 to 4 inches of the white stuff expected for Boston, up to 8 in Worcester. Late this afternoon, it'll slowly switch over to rain in some spots. High today in the mid-30s. Cloudy overnight with a low around 30. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s. On Thursday, we may reach 50. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 708.
9: WBUR supporters include the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Yarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C.
11: I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. Congress may be divided. One of its committees is less so. A new select House committee on China has attracted bipartisan support. The Republican chairman, Mike Gallagher,
12: of Wisconsin, spoke with our program in December. If you had to put a number on it, what percentage of opinion about China and the threat to China is bipartisan right now?
1: Maybe if I had to guess, it'd be 75 percent. Tonight, the committee
11: on China holds its first hearing. So we also call on its top Democrat, Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois.
13: Mike and I have agreed to consult each other on the agenda, so I'm
11: hopeful that we can chart a common path. Christian Morthy and Gallagher spoke together with our
12: co-host, Steve Inskeep. And we noticed that both of them tended to speak not about China, but the Chinese Communist Party. Gallagher, the Republican, says the word choice is deliberate.
1: I think it's it conveys something essential about the party state. The Chinese Communist Party controls... Everything. It's a very small group of people in the Politburo that control everything, and increasingly one person in the form of Xi Jinping, who I think can be more accurately referred to as general secretary and not president, because as general secretary of the party, that's how he derives all of his power. We don't have a quarrel with the Chinese people, and the Chinese people are often the primary victim of CCP oppression and repression.
12: Both lawmakers spoke of China's imprisonment of thousands of Uyghurs. They're a largely Muslim ethnic group in the mountains and deserts of western China. As U.S. relations with China declined in recent years, the United States labeled China's actions genocide. China rejects that label, although the Chinese diplomat Qin Gang told us last year they were re-educating
14: Uyghurs. We give them chance. We use uh, a measure to correct them. It's uh, preventive measure
12: a preventive measure preventively because preventing them from having terrorist thoughts before they have them before they have them on this program last week we heard a uyghur journalist golchera hoja who speaks of her region as a separate country although it's not clear how it could ever win independence we played some of hoja's words to the lawmakers
15: you know I want to give the message to the Chinese government, even you are locked down so many millions of people, even you kill them, you cannot kill their hope.
12: Gentlemen, that was a powerful statement she made that a lot of people responded to. But I am left with the question, what in a practical sense can the United States do for people in Western China?
1: Well, I would say three things, Steve. One, by shining a light on the ongoing genocide, I think we can raise awareness and generate support for practical next steps.
12: Republican Mike Gallagher's next point was a law that Congress has already passed. It compels companies to certify they are not using Uyghur forced labor. Now, Gallagher wants to impose controls on U.S. investments in China.
1: So that we are not unwittingly funding communist genocide or PLA modernization. And that's the area where I think we're going to need to develop legislation in this Congress.
12: Although I do have that question for you both, and it's a very hard question. Do we as a country in some way rile up people in Western China and encourage them to get in trouble with their government and ultimately we can't protect them?
13: I don't think so. They don't need to be riled up by anybody, Steve. Um, I think that they are agitating for fundamental
12: human rights Let me ask about two items that have been in the news regarding China in recent months. Uh, Do you feel you understand any better what that Chinese balloon was about?
13: (laughs) (laughs) Well, ever since that story popped, we've been talking about uh, the balloon uh, a lot in different ways. He said the story popped. That's
12: the Democrat, Raja Krishnamurthy.
13: The Chinese spy balloon is just one part of a massive surveillance apparatus, Steve, that the CCP has put in place. They have cyber espionage tools. They also enlist what are called cyber gangs. According to the U.S. Secret Service, uh, there's a gang called the APT-41 out of Chengdu, China, that not only conducts cyber surveillance for them, but they also collect personally identifiable information of Americans, and they used it to get COVID aid under the PPP program and then they turned over the identifiable information to the CCP.
1: You know, a a Chinese spy balloon drifting over the country, encircling our, our nuclear ICBM facilities, has a way of sort of bringing the threat close to home that's more powerful than any sort of individual statement Raj and I could make. And he's absolutely right to suggest that it's just one part of a broader espionage apparatus, much of which is poorly understood. It's my contention that the most insidious and least understood form of CCP influence is something called United Front Work. Uh, It's what Xi Jinping refers to as a magic weapon. It's how they influence foreign societies and capture foreign elites. And so I think a lot of our work on the committee is gonna be to prize our colleagues of the nature of United Front Work because they are targets. We are a soft target for Chinese influence here in Congress.
12: You just used the phrase capture foreign elites. Are they capturing American elites as you see it?
1: I see many members of the business community, the Wall Street community, who, in pursuit of profits in China, have been willing to silence their criticism of the regime. And I understand the natural impulse to make money. But we, I think, are going to have to ask some hard questions of business elites about how exactly they navigate the delicate balance of doing business in China.
12: I want to ask about one other thing that's been in the news. The United States in various ways is moving against TikTok because it's such a popular social media platform that is owned by a Chinese company. But I was talking with a colleague earlier who made an interesting point. She said, OK, TikTok is a Chinese company, but is it really any worse than every other app on my phone that is constantly mining my data for profit? Is it really that much worse?
1: It's more addictive, and that part of that is just because the tech is better. I think the difference is the basic ownership structure, right, TikTok is owned by ByteDance. ByteDance is a Chinese company that operates at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party, which is heavily influenced by the party state and its members. You can't say the same for the other apps, all of which are admittedly addictive and a bad use of anybody's time, particularly if you're an adult. The issue with TikTok sort of flowing from that basic ownership structure isn't just that the app can be used to spy or collect sensitive data. More than that, it can be used to influence the news, what people see and talk about, and therefore to interfere in our society and our politics and our very democracy. So I think we're nearing a, a very dangerous inflection point here. We don't want the CCP to control one of, if not the most influential information platform in the West.
12: Representatives Mike Gallagher and Raja Krishnamurthy, thanks to you both. Thank
11: Thank thank you. you so much. The House Select Committee on China holds its first hearing today, while a different panel, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, considers a bill that would allow the president to ban TikTok. The White House, meanwhile, has directed government agencies to remove the TikTok app from federal devices.
10: Earthquake survivors in Turkey and Syria are still facing huge questions about their future. Like, where will they live? Three weeks after the quakes brought near total destruction to many towns and neighborhoods, NPR's Peter Kenyon visited Mersin, Turkey. It's a busy port city where a huge population
16: is now searching for homes. In a small office in Mersin, real estate agent Samet Celik says the influx of people needing housing has been
17: overwhelming.
16: Yes, since the first earthquake, they say most of the people evacuated have ended up here maybe as many as 400,000 people. That number came from Mersin's mayor, Vahap Secher. But what's getting attention at the moment is how some of the city's landlords have responded. Chelek says the influx has spurred many landlords to jack up rent prices far above what's allowed by law. Sometimes, he says, the rent doubles or triples during the course of a single day. His colleague, Cabra Kubakla, says this is coming on top of a previous housing crisis in Mersin, sparked by earlier floods of migrants who wound up here after fleeing conflict at home.
4: Before, we had a housing crisis with migrants coming here from Afghanistan, Syria, and other places. So there was a lot of density in the population already. Now with the earthquake victims, it's gotten much worse. It's impossible to accommodate everyone.
16: A couple blocks from the real estate office, I ran into the Doan family, 53-year-old Kasim, his wife Ozdan, and two sons. They're from Malatya, a city that suffered huge damage in the 7.8-magnitude earthquake and the major aftershocks that followed. Kasim Doan says their state-built house was still standing after the first earthquake did heavy damage to their city nearby, but they immediately decided to come to Mersin, where there's less damage and fewer aftershocks. When asked how long he thinks they might be away, he says he's not sure. He makes a living repairing balconies. But he would feel embarrassed to charge people right now. We don't know what we're going to do, because even if I go back to my house, my job is to repair
13: balconies. What am I gonna do? Ask money from people to fix their balconies? I don't know if the business is going to continue, but if living here means starting from scratch, I don't know
16: if we can do that either. But Dohan's son Umutjan, a 27-year-old civil engineer, seems to have no doubts about the future. We are going to build again. Of course, we are going to build it again. How the reconstruction is done, of course, is likely to be closely scrutinized. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's government has been under fire over allegations that contractors were allowed to skip important safety measures designed to help buildings in earthquake prone areas resist the shock of a quake. Qasem Doan says the controversy reminds him of a job he once had working on construction of a new building. I was working on a new building, but the quality of the materials
13: wasn't very good. And then this guy drives up in a new BMW. I
16: asked the owners of the building, who's that guy? And they said, oh, that's our contractor. At an aid storage area, a volunteer takes us to a warehouse crammed with donations, mattresses stacked against one wall, boxes of food and other supplies piled high against another. He says it feels like he's in constant motion. They're
18: organizing by supply and demand. Baby food, baby clothes are important. Most needed now are hygiene products, laundry soap, food and baby products. The
16: warehouse usually empties out every three days as aid gets sent to the earthquake zone. And then it fills right back up again with more donations, as Turkey responds to its worst earthquake disaster in more than a century. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Mersin, Turkey.
10: This is NPR
0: News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, healthcare providers are finding loopholes in new laws meant to protect patients, leaving some with big bills for emergency care. It's 720.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Loomis Sales, a performance-driven investment manager navigating challenging financial markets around the globe since 1926. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. A pregnant woman in Texas was excited to be
19: having twins and then found out one had a fatal condition. She needed to protect the other twin, but new abortion laws in the state meant her doctor only felt comfortable saying this to her.
20: You can't
21: do anything in Texas and I can't tell you anything further in Texas, but you need to get out of state.
19: That
0: story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. There's some light snow falling across the region at this hour. That may continue through the afternoon, and in some areas transition to rain, up to four inches of snow may fall around Boston, up to eight inches around Worcester. We'll have a high in the mid-30s, and it'll be windy today. Tonight, low 30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 44. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 721.
2: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from Subaru. Introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil.
2: And I'm May Martinez.
11: It's time for our February Bill of the Month. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal is editor-in-chief of our partner, Kaiser Health News. Doctor, all right, tell us about this month's patient. Who are we
17: meeting? We're meeting Daniel Lasky from Washington State, who was about six months pregnant with her son and needed specialty pregnancy care really fast when she was snagged on what we discovered appears to be a loophole in the nation's much vaunted surprise billing law, which was passed last year. That's the rule that's supposed to protect patients financially when they need emergency care. But in this case, the family got hit with pricey out of network hospital bills, not once, but
11: twice. Okay, reporter Stephanie O'Neill spoke with Danielle. Uh, Let's listen to her story. And after, we'll have you tell us some more about that loophole in the law.
22: It's super early on a chilly February morning, and six-month-old Corporal Lasky is, as usual, wide awake and ready to rock. He's a happy, healthy baby, but getting him here was rough, says his mom, Danielle. Complications in the pregnancy started two months before his birth, while the Lasky family was vacationing about three hours from home.
23: The first day we were there, I had this big, like, gush of fluid. And then over the course of the day, it happened one or two more times, and we started to get obviously concerned and rightfully so danielle was losing the
22: fluid that protects the fetus her specialist obstetricians wanted her hospitalized immediately and for the remaining seven weeks of her pregnancy so they sent her to the only hospital where they admit patients swedish medical center in seattle then about a week after giving birth danielle came down with fever and chills
23: the complication that i had with my daughter placenta accreta, that happened again
22: Placenta accreta occurs when portions of the placenta become embedded in the muscles of the uterus. Her doctors removed the remaining placenta and Danielle went home the same day. All seemed great, says Danielle, until the hospital sent a bill demanding she pay $15,000 out of pocket for that second procedure. I was like, this can't be right. They must have not sent it to the right insurance or something was wrong. I didn't actually believe that that was the bill. Shortly after, the hospital sent her the bill for her first stay, the one leading up to the birth, claiming she was on the hook for a whopping $120,000. That's when Danielle learned that Swedish Medical Center was not in her insurance network, even though her obstetricians, who were part of the Swedish health system, were in network.
4: It never crossed my mind that it wouldn't be a network.
22: And Danielle, herself a registered nurse, says during her weeks-long stay at the hospital, no one mentioned that important detail to her. We were kind of just gearing
23: ourselves up, I think emotionally and mentally, to
4: fight this as long as we had to. And or to sell our house.
22: Ultimately, the Laskies didn't have to sell their home. Danielle and her husband appealed the out-of-network classification for Danielle's first visit on the grounds that patients are supposed to be protected from out-of-network billing in emergency situations and that her seven-week stay was due to an emergency. In January, the insurer granted their request and zeroed out the $120,000 bill. But that still left the Laskies with the $15,000 bill. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie O'Neill.
11: All right, we're back, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Wow. I mean, with the sticker shock, $120,000, then 15000 I mean, that's just all these numbers being thrown at someone. So
17: what happened <laughs> with that second bill? Well, the good news is soon after our reporter reached out to the hospital and insurance company, Danielle got word that her second hospital visit was also reclassified as a network. So those super steep bills went away for the Laskies. A spokesman for the hospital told us they disagreed with some of the details and characterizations of events presented by the Laskies, but they didn't tell us what those were and in any case the bill was zeroed out. You know, but here's the rub, the insurer region still argued that surprise billing protections didn't apply to the Lasky situation, and that the health plan did not violate that new law in its original decision. Hmm. So they kind of said, we're going to zero out the bill, but we were right.
11: Yeah, because logically, it seems like maybe it did. I mean, does that bring us to the
17: legal loophole in that law that you mentioned? Yeah, exactly. Um, Usually hospitals and doctors, as we know, are either in-network or out-of-network for your insurance plan. It's pretty black and white, right? But in this case, the hospital and insurer used a different category. They called it a participating provider which is in a kind of gray area in between. So the federal law protects patients from bills from an out-of-network provider in an emergency, but the insurer argues the hospital was not out-of-network, even though it wasn't in-network either. Billing experts we spoke to said they'd never heard of this kind of construct before, but it's out there.
11: And that sounds like an incredibly tricky thing for a patient to navigate
17: especially once you're sick. But unfortunately, the message is once again, buyer beware. Even in emergencies before you're admitted, patients should ask if the hospital is in their health network and read your insurance plan paperwork. Look for that new phrase I'm hearing, participating provider, which might be an indication that you'll be on the hook for high out of network prices. Uh, Those words, unfortunately, may yet be another red flag for sick patients.
11: So, Doctor, does this mean that
17: the federal surprise bill law is not working? Oh, no, uh, quite the opposite. Overall, the law is doing lots of good, protecting many, many Americans from unpredictable out-of-network pricing. But, you know, patients can still get hammered, we're discovering especially if the provider network where you live is small or there's some ambiguity about whether the care you received was an emergency or not. So lawmakers and even billing experts are playing catch up as we kind of learn more about the new law and critics say that providers seem to be finding ways to sidestep the spirit of the law, if not its actual words.
11: That is Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. Now, if you have a confusing medical bill that you want us to review, please go to NPR's SHOTS blog and tell us all about it. Dr. Thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shunoy. Coming up here on Morning Edition, how the coup in Myanmar is impacting more than a million Rohingya who remain in refugee camps. It's 729.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com.
18: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Federal officials say 15 monitoring stations in East Palestine, Ohio, continue to show normal air quality for area residents. That follows this month's fiery freight train derailment. Amid the monitoring, Norfolk Southern has resumed moving contaminated liquid and solid waste away from the village. It's being taken to an incinerator and an underground injection well in other areas of the state. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio remains critical of Norfolk Southern.
4: They have not invested in rail safety, uh, boxcar safety, engine safety, um, the way that they should have. And that's, um, that's what will come out of this. I want to see rail safety legislation pass.
18: More than a dozen lawsuits have been filed against the rail company since the derailment. Snow is falling across much of the northeastern U.S. More than six inches of snow are likely by tonight in areas from northern Pennsylvania to Maine. Areas closer to the Atlantic coast, including Boston, are expected to see lesser amounts. In California, there's no let-up in the blizzard conditions affecting the mountains.
12: The Sierra Nevada... Um, particularly is expected to get up to two to four more feet of snow.
18: That's meteorologist David Roth at the National Weather Service. Dow futures are up nearly 100 points this morning. This is NPR News.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shunoy. The month of February is going out with some snow, but right now it's not too bad out there. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says this storm will last all day.
21: Areas of snow of varying intensity through the day today. Expect reduced visibility and tricky travel. Some rain mixes in on Cape Cod and we may change over briefly right at the immediate coast later this afternoon too. Everything ends this evening 7 to 9 p.m. from west to east. Snow totals 1 to 2 inches on Cape Cod. 2 to 4 inches for the south shore to Boston, Metro West, North Shore and the Merrimack Valley. Outside of 495 north and west of the city, some higher totals 4 to 6 inches with a few spots nearing 8. Tonight, the temperatures drop below freezing so Untreated surfaces will be slick. Some melting tomorrow, though, with highs in the 40s and a late-day rain shower.
0: The website FlightAware reports more than 80 flights in and out of Boston have been canceled today. It's much easier on the T with no delays reported right now. Legislative leaders are reserving judgment of Governor Healy's $750 million tax relief package. It will ultimately be up to the legislature to decide which parts of that plan, if any, are enacted. More now from WBUR's Steve Brown.
16: Healy sat down
11: with House Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka just hours after unveiling her plan, which she says will make it more affordable for people to live in Massachusetts. Mariano and Spilka were non-committal, saying they still have to evaluate it. Spilka did note that some parts are in line with what the Senate has endorsed in the past.
24: We will certainly be taking a look at that, in particular the child care and dependent tax credit. I'm proud that the Senate initiated that a few years back.
11: A tax relief package failed to pass last year when it was learned the state was obligated to return $3 billion in excess revenues to taxpayers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: Families of veterans who died of COVID at the Chelsea Soldiers' Home are suing the people who ran the home. The COVID outbreak in 2020 killed more than 30 veterans. Their families argue that staff there didn't care about the risk COVID posed for older people. They tell the Boston Globe the deaths could have been prevented if COVID rules were followed. No one named in the suit has made any comments. It's 734.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com.
0: The Bruins beat the Oilers 3-2 to last night in Edmonton. The Bees will wrap up their road trip tonight in Calgary. The Celtics lost to the Knicks 109-94 last night in New York. The Seas will host the Cavaliers tomorrow. A recap of the weather, snow, wind, patchy fog, and some rain this morning becoming all rain in some areas after about 3 p.m. It'll be in the 30s. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston at 734.
2: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm a. Martinez in Culver City, California.
10: And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. More than a million Rohingya people have fled targeted violence in their native Myanmar. Most of them remain in refugee camps across the border in Bangladesh. And most have been there for more than five years. As NPR's Lauren Freyer learned, some say they feel the world has forgotten them. A warning that this report talks about rape and other forms
25: of violence.
16: Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam.
25: Jamalida Begum waves me into her sweltering little bamboo house in this refugee camp in southern Bangladesh and immediately launches into a horrifying story. About non-stop shooting that killed her husband and neighbors in their village across the border in Myanmar and about what soldiers did to her next. Jamalida is one of thousands of rape survivors from what human rights observers call a genocide against the Rohingya people. For six years, she sat cross-legged on this dirt floor telling this story, to aid workers, to investigators from the International Criminal Court, even to the Prime Minister of Bangladesh when she visited these camps. The details are tough, and And I tell Jamalida she does not have to recount them again. It's then, though, that she starts to cry. I used to see my name in the news all the time, she says. But journalists have stopped coming. The world has stopped listening. I feel forgotten and I still don't have justice, she says. No justice and no hope of going home either. When she moved into this bamboo house six years ago, it felt temporary. There was a mud path out front. Now it's a brick walkway. And on either side there are thatched bamboo huts lined with tarpaulin that have the UNHCR, UN High Commissioner for Refugees logo. There are some kiosks, uh, a barber shop. The call to prayer sounds out and a lot of young men in white prayer caps gather. It's less like a camp, more like a city as time goes by. But it's a city without hope, says 18-year-old Mohammed Imran.
16: We lost our hope we would
2: go back to our country with dignity.
25: A coup two years ago in Myanmar left the military in charge there. The same military that burned down his house. That dashed his hopes of going home anytime soon. But schools in these camps only go to the eighth grade. Drug trafficking is rampant. There was a shooting here recently. Mohammed is idle, agitated, and looking to escape.
2: We can't move freely. We feel stressful.
25: You feel unsafe here. Yeah.
2: So I try to go to Malaysia.
25: He wants to go to Malaysia, he says. After languishing for years here, a growing number of Rohingya have been paying smugglers to ferry them across the sea. But these waters in the Bay of Bengal are dangerous, boats are rickety, the smugglers can be unscrupulous. And hundreds, perhaps thousands of Rohingya have drowned on these journeys. A woman called Rokia, who goes by one name, is trying to figure out if her husband was one of them. He said he was going out to watch a soccer game, she says, but then he called two days later on his way to Malaysia. That was 11 months ago. And she has not heard from him since
17: yeah. she says she has
25: a bad feeling he should have called by now
17: hello hi hi
25: hello a generation of rohingya children is growing up in bangladesh but the government doesn't want them to stay it's banned schools from teaching them the local bangla language it doesn't want them to integrate it wants them to go home or wants other countries to take them so for now, schoolchildren in these camps are taught to recite the National Anthem of Myanmar. A country that despite everything they've been through, they still consider home. Meanwhile, some of the adults here are slowly accepting the idea that they may spend the rest of their lives away from that home. And so they're building a cultural memory center with displays of traditional Rohingya farm tools, pottery, models of architecture.
18: All the models of Rohingya hoses. So
25: these are like straw models of the architecture style.
18: Rohingya uh, artisan made that.
25: Shahat Zia Hiro is one of the tour guides. He says the children run around and play with the dioramas. But the adults, they weep when they walk in. Because even an old plow from a farm can be a reminder of the life they left behind.
18: It's really important to remind people their own culture, because culture is our identity. We must keep our identity with us so we never become people from nowhere.
25: So that they don't become the people from nowhere, he says. The people the world has forgotten. Lauren Freyer and PR News in a Rohingya refugee camp near Cox's Bazar Bangladesh.
11: Tennis legend Steffi Graf is handing off one of her crowns to another legend. With 22 Grand Slam titles, Graf dominated tennis in the 80s and 90s, and she was ranked as the world's number one player for a staggering 377
14: weeks.
10: That record's been broken by Novak Djokovic, a legend in his own right, who, together with Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal, dominated men's tennis over the last couple of decades.
26: Djokovic has progressed from breaking the men's record to breaking the women's record and then the overall record. And this has all happened relatively quickly.
11: That's writer and tennis fan Anna Mitrich. She's been following Djokovic and his progress.
26: He attributes a lot of his success and longevity to the care he takes with his body, and that he, he's had better luck with injuries than either of his two biggest rivals.
10: In 2022, Djokovic was blocked from competing at the Australian Open because he refused to be vaccinated for COVID. He was detained, then deported. Not playing cost him the number one ranking.
11: But he returned to Melbourne earlier this year to win his 22nd Grand Slam title and reclaim the top spot. Djokovic has now been ranked number one for more than seven years of his career, a feat that he says on social media has him feeling both blessed and grateful. Here's Anna Mitrich again.
26: It's pretty incredible that another history making player has come along not only so soon after Federer's dominance, but also while both he and Rafael Nadal, who's you know the other member of the big three, were still active players.
10: Novak Djokovic will try to keep setting records this season at the French Open, Wimbledon and possibly at the U.S. Open this summer. Djokovic says he's asked for permission to play in the U.S. without a COVID vaccination. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a classic rock anniversary. Pink Floyd's landmark album, Dark Side of the Moon, is fifty. Listen on your smart speaker by asking for NPR or your member station by name.
0: This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, we hear from Tanisha Sullivan, one of the co-chairs of Governor Maura Healey's new Commission on Black Empowerment. And in our next hour, today's Memorial Day in Taiwan, commemorating an anti-government uprising in 1947. Snow all day today. Watch out for slick spots and poor visibility on the roads. Two to four inches expected in eastern Mass, one to two on the Cape, and four to six around Worcester. The snow is mixing with rain in some areas and could become all rain late this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the mid-30s. Patchy fog, cloudy, and low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, 40s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 743.
9: WBUR supporters include Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org slash Tanglewood.
0: Westboro-based Ascend Elements is partnering with Japanese automaker Honda. Under the deal, Ascend will supply recycled materials for Honda's electric car batteries. The company already recycles batteries for multiple automakers, but this is the first time Ascend will work to return those materials for use in new cars. There will soon be a seventh airline offering flights between Boston and London. Norse Atlantic Airlines will begin flying between Logan and London Gatwick in September. The low-cost airline will fly the route five days a week. It's 744.
2: support for NPR comes from this station and from ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-k to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chinoy. Governor Moore Healey has created a new council to advise her office on Black empowerment. The 30-member group will weigh in on a number of issues impacting Black people in Massachusetts, from economic prosperity to education. Joining us now is the group's co-chair, Tanisha Sullivan. She's also president of the Boston branch of the NAACP. Good morning, ma'am. Good morning. It's wonderful to be with you. Thanks for being here. So yesterday was your first meeting. How'd it go?
26: It was wonderful. Um, You know, we are all very excited uh, to be a part of this advisory council. It is a diverse group of leaders uh, from across the Commonwealth, All of us, of course, bringing to this council different experiences, but all of us also bringing to this council a deep love for the Commonwealth and a commitment to ensuring that all people have the opportunity to benefit from the prosperity of the Commonwealth.
0: Governor Healy named several issues that she'd like this committee to advise her on, including healthcare, housing, education and workforce development. That's a lot. How do you think you'll go about prioritizing those?
26: It is. Um, one of the things that we are going to do uh, in very short order is to go into our communities um, and uh, engage in listening sessions. We think that it's it's critically important that while many of us have been doing work in community for, for years, for decades now, that we want to make sure that folks across the Commonwealth know that, um, that we're going to be intentional, we're hoping to address the issues that are most pressing today. Um, and so we'll start with a listening session. Really excited about that, and that'll uh, probably launch in the early spring, so April.
0: You know, it can be a tough time for a lot of people with inflation and the cost of housing right now. How are you thinking about including Black people from across the state in this work in those listening sessions?
26: Thank you so much for that question. Within the executive order that the governor signed yesterday is an opportunity for for us to create subcommittees of this council um, and to bring other people uh, to the table. To help us as we roll up our sleeves to identify the issues. And I should say, Rupa, also the opportunities. I think that there are some bright spots across the Commonwealth, you know, to, to identify the things that are working well as we um, build out our recommendations for the governor and lieutenant governor. This will be a dynamic group in the sense that. Yes, there are 30 or so folks who um, who were brought to the table yesterday, but those will not be the only people around the table as we really dig in um, to ensure that we're doing all we can to include all of the communities across the Commonwealth in
0: this work. You know, we're always hearing about new committees and commissions. Do you ever worry that this sort of committee or commission will just end up being lip service? Or do you believe it has the power to create lasting change?
26: There's always that uh, potential when you have committees or commissions of this type. What I heard from members yesterday was a deep commitment to ensuring that we actually get stuff done. And so I'm really um, looking forward to working with this group of folks because um, while we know we're not going to... um, to be able to address all of the issues and challenges, I'm confident that we will um, be able to identify two to three of the most pressing systemic issues and uh, roll up our sleeves together in order to make uh, cogent recommendations, actionable recommendations, impactful recommendations to the Healy Driscoll administration to help ensure that we are um, empowering the Black community and all communities across the Commonwealth.
0: Tanisha Sullivan is one of the newly appointed co-chairs of Governor Healy's Advisory Council on Black Empowerment. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston Tiziana Deering braved the roads to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. How was it driving in? Honestly, not
27: too bad, Rupa. And I have a kid at home who was sorely disappointed by the lack (laughs) of a snow day today at school. So I think not a total nothing burger, but I think this has turned out not to be. The snowstorm that we thought it was going to be. Yeah. So, And uh, Joe Gatto, Chef Joe Gatto, we were worried he would might have trouble making it, but he is coming in at the end of the show today with supplies, teaching us how to make dumplings in Studio Two, right where you're sitting right yeah, now. Feel we free will to be dumpling- let, leave some
0: around here there you go. when you're done. There what else you is go. going on?
27: So, the big one today, I think um, the new head of the Massachusetts GOP, Amy Carnavale, is coming in. We have a lot to talk about. Yeah. Uh, it's been a long time since we've had the head of the Republican Party in, um, big financial challenges for the party, her rebuilding plan, um, how she's going to kind of tackle the near term and the long term in a major restructuring project.
0: Yeah, you got a lot to get to. Thank you. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston. Today at 11, it's 751.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News, Ami Martinez.
6: And I'm Leila Falded
10: We're going to listen in on a conversation now about finding magic in the everyday. Our friend and former co-host, Rachel Martin, spoke with author Catherine May about her new book, *Enchantment: Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. What does
28: it mean to you to be enchanted?
8: Enchantment for me was this project to find ways to feel my connection with the world around me again, and to reignite a sense of fascination with it, of awe, the kind of awe that I felt as a child that came so easily to me, which I really had lost contact with. Catherine May remembers being enchanted easily as a child. I used to spend a lot of time sitting in my back garden, smashing rocks open with a hammer. (laughs) I mean, we didn't have iPads in those days. Like, life was hard. (laughs) Very enchanting activity. (laughs) Yeah. You know, like, every 10th or 20th stone would have, like, a little geode of crystals inside it. Ah. And that was absolutely magical to me. You know, how this... I could uncover this little tiny cave that was millions of years old and which nobody had ever seen before. And I guess there's that time when everything feels heightened and everything feels very possible. Mm. And I think we almost deliberately shut that down as we get older. For May, cultivating enchantment is intrinsically linked to her spiritual life. Actually, it's something I've come to quite late. I mean, I've always felt very resistant to any kind of a spiritual discussion at all. Like I've always seen myself as a really practical person who only makes decisions on scientific terms. And I think for for a long time now, I've realized that that doesn't fulfill every part of me, that in many ways it actually involves squashing down some of my perception and telling myself very carefully that that's not something that's my domain, that that's something that other people do and not me, and that I'm too sensible and practical for this kind of thing. And it's a very soothing thing to do, to allow yourself to feel very tiny in a big universe and to spend some time reflecting on the things that you find beautiful or awe-inspiring.
28: The, the notion of God is complicated, right? But for many of us, it's the word, the term, the idea that we use to connote something bigger.
8: Mm. What does that mean to you? Oh I'd love to be able to answer that question if only. <laughs> and I in fact that's the that's the vulnerable core of this book for me is approaching this huge three letter word god which I've never felt a connection with in any definition that I've been given. And yet as I've gone through life I've also felt like there is something there. In those quiet moments, in those worshipful moments, in those prayerful moments, I feel contact with a consciousness that isn't mine or or rather is bigger than mine. Do you pray? Yeah, I do. And I always have, actually. It's something I learned to do when I was at school and I've never stopped. Really? And I'm and for the longest time, I haven't known who I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> That's my question. Like I went to you know, a religious
28: school growing up and prayer was kind of the deal. As an adult, I will admit that it feels like silly to me. Like I can't get over my own self-consciousness. You have faced
8: some of that too? Oh my goodness. So much of that. I realised I had this urge in me to pray, and yet I felt silly about every single instance of trying to do it. I was really troubled by how I'd been taught to pray, which was kind of to ask for stuff in lots of ways. Right. And I spent a long time reflecting on it, and I was writing about it one day, and this line, I mean, sometimes lines appear in my notebook. I don't think they come from my own wisdom, to be honest. They seem really external to me, but the line was, ask nothing of God. That made sense to me. Mm. The act of prayerfulness was an act of kind of trying to share what was in my mind and my heart. Because to me, what this greater being could do was know me in a way that no one else could know me. And that was when it began to make sense. To that end, can you tell me about the well? Because that
28: anecdote feels prayerful in a way. Yes.
8: <laughs> so I am lucky enough to live near Canterbury, and while I was writing the book, a friend of mine told me that she had found this well, this this pilgrims' well, that she'd been visiting, and she took me to see it. It's a thousand years old, probably, and it's hidden behind a giant overgrown rose bush. <laughs> Um, And so we came to this beautiful stone surrounding with this beautiful still pool of water. And then there were several steps down to that pool. This perfect little environment for reflection and literal reflection because you get down there and you see your face reflected in the pool. And I found that I was filled with this feeling of, of deep peace down there, but also that I could take my self in whatever state I came there <laughs> and to, to be prayerful.
28: What was especially profound for me in reading that part is the responsibility that you have, that the individual has to make the meaning, right? Like
8: the well won't do it for you. Yeah, no. And that's, that's the change that I had to undergo and that I I do think loads of us would benefit from undergoing is this this dropping of wanting to be told the answers because they're just not there. There are no answers. And simple answers quickly turn into horrible, generalised strictures on our lives Mm -hmm. as as soon as we start taking them in. And the learning for us is to sit with mystery the book is
28: called Enchantment Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. It's written by Catherine May. Catherine, what a pleasure to talk with you about these things. Thank you so
8: much. Oh, thank you. That was so lovely.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil.
11: And I'm A. martinez
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. <laughs>
22: I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Britain and the EU strike a landmark deal averting a trade war over Northern Ireland and possibly ending lingering tension that began with Brexit. It's Tuesday, February twenty eighth. This is WB Mar's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, tens of thousands of people are protesting a new Mexican election law that some say undermines democracy in the country. And the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today over whether the Biden administration exceeded its authority with its student debt forgiveness program. Also, Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of Fox's parent company, has acknowledged under oath that some Fox hosts endorsed falsehoods about the 2020 election. Plus, ticks are now a year-round threat in New England. In sports, the Bruins win, Celtics lose. Snow mixing with rain today, it'll be in the 30s. It's 8.01. Now the news.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Senate Democrats are calling for an investigation into the massive train derailment and chemical spill in East Palestine, Ohio. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are demanding answers from Railroad Norfolk Southern. Senate Majority
29: Leader Chuck Schumer says first responders are working around the clock to clean up hazardous material that was spilled into the Ohio River and surrounding community.
18: The scene in East Palestine over the last month has been the stuff of nightmares. The stench of industrial chemicals and soot hovering in the air. Parents scared of their kids' drinking water.
29: Schumer says the CEO of Norfolk Southern needs to come before the Senate and explain what exactly went wrong. Some lawmakers have blasted the company for pushing to loosen regulations designed to prevent such accidents. The National Transportation Safety Board has said the derailment was 100% preventable. WINSOR JOHNSTON, NPR NEWS, WASHINGTON.
3: THE RELENTLESS WINTER STORM IS STILL POUNDING THE NORTHEAST. UP TO 9 INCHES OF SNOW COULD FALL FROM NEW YORK TO MAINE. ALICIA GORDON LIVES JUST NORTH OF NEW YORK CITY. SHE DASHED TO THE STORE TO STOCK UP. Meats AND SOME OTHER GROCERIES LIKE MILK, CHEESE, DELI ITEMS eggs, goodies. <laughs> in Michigan, residents are still trying to recover from last week's ice storm. The tracking site, poweroutage.us, says nearly 160,000 Michigan customers don't have electricity. Farther west, a blizzard continues to drop feet of snow on mountains in eastern California. The Biden administration is stepping up efforts to combat exploitative child labor in the U.S., The announcement comes just days after a New York Times investigation revealed an increase in migrant children who are illegally employed in dangerous conditions. NPR's Andrea Shu has more.
25: The Labor Department says since 2018 it's seen a 69 percent increase in children illegally employed. The department says it has more than 600 open investigations, including into Hearthside Food Solutions. That's the company at the center of the New York Times investigation that makes and packages food for General Mills, Frito-Lay, and other brands. But labor officials say the penalties for violating child labor law are too small to be a deterrent. They're calling on Congress to increase those penalties. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, the Department of Health and Human Services announced measures to better vet the sponsors of children who cross into the U.S. without their parents, and to provide more services for those children after they're released from government custody. Andrea Hsu, PR News. Polls are open in Chicago as voters start
3: choosing their next mayor. Incumbent Lori Lightfoot faces eight challengers. It may be difficult for any one of the candidates to get 50 percent or more of today's vote. If needed, the Chicago mayoral race will go to a runoff election in April between the top two vote-getters. This is NPR.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chanoi. Our latest winter snowstorm is here, but it's not too rough out this morning. The state has about 2,000 crews out treating the roads. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says if you need to be on the roads this morning, take it slow.
7: I will say that conditions can be slippery in a number of areas, especially on those secondary roads and on on ramps and off ramps. And it, the further west you go, that the more conditions are a little bit more difficult with uh, with the heavier snowfall or sea.
0: WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says this will be a slow storm lasting all day. Snow coming down, though it will vary in
21: intensity through the afternoon. A changeover to rain on Cape Cod, the South Shore, perhaps even Boston briefly later today. Expect some tough travel, reduced visibility, snow-covered roads at times. Everything tapers off 7 to 9 p.m. Snow totals 2 to 4 inches, much of eastern Massachusetts, including Boston. A little less, 1 to 2 inches on the Cape, and a little more, 4 to 6 inches north and west of the city outside of 495. Tonight, skies clear. We drop into the upper 20s. Untreated surfaces will be slippery. Tomorrow, some sun to start, a late-day rain shower and some melting highs in the 40s. Still monitoring a storm potential late Friday into Saturday with a wintry mix likely.
0: The website FlightAware reports more than 80 flights in and out of Logan Airport have been canceled this morning. State educational officials say Boston Public Schools systematically failed to provide students with disabilities with adequate, reliable bus service. They're ordering the district to make improvements quickly. WBUR's Max Larkin reports some of those changes have to be made in the next two weeks. The
24: state's findings come in response to a complaint filed by advocacy groups. BPS has to revamp its approach by March 15th to notify families more quickly about gaps in service and to reimburse them for resulting out-of-pocket costs. Roxy Harvey is chair of Boston's SPEDPAC, which represents students with disabilities. She welcomes the new sense of urgency.
17: It's not enough to say, yeah, 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 we train our bus drivers and monitors. It's not enough to say, oh, we let families know they can be reimbursed. This time around, they are also asking for documentation.
24: Boston Mayor Michelle Wu told WBUR she hopes a $50 million overhaul of special education services will help. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin.
0: Colleagues are remembering former Massachusetts Congressman John Olver. He died last week. Aldenborn reports the Amherst Democrat was known for his intellect and candor.
18: Over represented Western and Central Massachusetts in Congress for more than two decades. He previously served in the Massachusetts legislature. Former State Senate President Stan Rosenberg worked for Over back then and says his former boss taught him plenty.
7: Do your homework, listen more than you talk, and really identify the common ground that you can find among the varying interests
18: Former State Representative Ellen Story first got to know Ulver when he served at the State House and says he was an anti politician.
3: You knew where he stood, you knew he was honest, you knew he was very smart, and that he had done his homework on whatever the issue was.
18: A memorial service is planned for April. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne.
0: It's 8.07.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More
0: at edutopia.org. A heads up for T-Riders this morning. The MBTA says an earlier power problem affecting its signal system is now fixed, but there are still lingering delays on all four subway lines. In sports, the Bruins topped the Oilers 3-2 to last night in Edmonton. The Bees end their road trip tonight in Calgary. The Celtics' three-game winning streak ended last night in New York. They lost to the Knicks 109-94. And your forecast snow throughout the day today. It's mixing with rain in some spots. Accumulation-wise, 2 to 4 inches of the white stuff expected for Boston. Up to 6 around Worcester. High today in the mid-30s. Cloudy overnight with a low around 30. Partly sunny tomorrow and in the lower 40s. On Thursday, we may reach 50. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 808. This is Morning Edition from
10: NPR News. I'm Leila Falted in Washington, D.C.
11: And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Six Republican-dominated states are asking the U.S. Supreme Court today to permanently block the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness program. Here's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg.
30: After the 9-11 terrorist attack... Congress passed a law to ensure that federal student loan borrowers would not be economically clobbered in a national emergency. The law specifically says that when the president declares such an emergency, the Secretary of Education has the power to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision governing student loan programs. During the pandemic, the Trump and Biden administrations both invoked the law to pause student debt payments without penalties. And last year, President Biden went further.
20: My campaign for president, I made a commitment. I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today.
30: Under the Biden plan, borrowers making up to $125,000 could qualify for as much as $10,000 in cancellation of their student debt. Individuals who received federal student aid based on financial need could qualify for as much as $20,000 in relief, and already 16 million student loan borrowers have been approved for some loan forgiveness. Before any debt was canceled, though, Two lower courts put the program on hold, and today the Supreme Court hears expedited arguments in a challenge to the Biden plan brought by six states—Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, Arkansas, Kansas, and South Carolina. The merits of the case are fairly straightforward. Does the 2003 law known as the HEROES Act give the president and his secretary of education the power to authorize federal student loan forgiveness? University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek, who consulted informally with the White House on this case, says it does. He says the words of the statute are clear and expansive.
5: At its core, the real objection is that this is a stunningly broad grant of authority from Congress to the Secretary of Education. The plain text of the statute, it's broad, but it's not vague. Uh, when it talks about the secretary's power to waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to programs like federal student aid.
30: Case Western University law professor Jonathan Adler, however, says waiving or modifying loan requirements is not the same thing as canceling the obligation to pay back some or all of the loan.
24: Modifying and waiving uh, regulations and requirements applicable to the loan program is different than erasing the underlying loan. The current court has made clear that it is reluctant to believe that Congress delegates big power without being explicit.
30: Adler concedes the statute's language is broad, but he says likely not broad enough for the very conservative Supreme Court of today. It is certainly
24: fair to claim that the court is putting a thumb on its scale on the way that statutory language like this is being interpreted. The court has basically saying, when in doubt, we assume Congress didn't give the power. If we have to argue about, well, do we read the statute this way or do we read it the other way? The Department of Education has already
30: lost. However the court rules, its decision will have huge practical effects for millions of people with outstanding federal student loans, particularly borrowers who have lower incomes. That said, the case could have an even greater impact on both red and blue states if the justices decide that the states in this case do not have the right to sue at all because they can't show that they've suffered any real harm. In recent years, Republicans have repeatedly parlayed state lawsuits into a forceful tool to get the conservative court to block Biden administration policies. But Democrats did the same thing during the Trump administration with less success. The Biden administration's student loan plan offers the court at least the opportunity to limit some of these challenges because in order to have legal standing to bring a lawsuit, you first have to show that you've been harmed. Again, Professor Adler.
24: As a general matter, it's much harder to challenge a governmental action that does something nice for somebody else than a governmental action that harms you. As a consequence, the the states here have had to be creative in terms of figuring out how to identify an impact on them from the forgiving of student loans to other people.
30: Indeed, the six states that are challenging the Biden plan have thrown everything at the wall to make such a showing. Among the plaintiffs, for instance, are two individuals who don't qualify for loan forgiveness. The one argument that Adler thinks likely may hold water is Missouri's claim that the Biden plan could end up depriving the state of revenue from the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, known as MOHILA. Mojila is an independent corporation explicitly not involved in the state's challenge, but it is a state-created entity that is one of the largest holders and servicers of student loans in the country. The state of Missouri claims that because Mojila would lose servicing fees on federal loans that are discharged, the agency might fail to make its required payments to the state treasury. Professor Vladek thinks that won't fly.
5: The Supreme Court has said for a decade that a future injury can't be a basis to sue unless it is, in the words of Justice Alito, quote, certainly impending.
30: All of this may sound like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But if the court says the states don't have standing to sue, that they have not suffered any concrete harm, President Biden's loan forgiveness plan likely will go into effect. And an estimated 43 million borrowers with federal student loans will get some relief. The price tag, according to the Congressional Budget Office, would be $300 billion. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington.
10: One of Taiwan's darkest moments in history involved a radio station. It happened 76 years ago today in 1947, just after Japan handed the island over to Chinese rule. As NPR's Emily Fang reports, marking that history is increasingly complicated.
29: The imposition of Chinese Guomingdong or KMT rule, did not go over well in Taiwan. The KMT was an opposition political party, then fighting a civil war with the Chinese Communist Party. And in Taiwan, they fostered a highly corrupt local government. On February 28th, police fired into a crowd of Taiwanese protesters and killed one man. Go Chuanqi is a historian who's written several books on this episode and what followed in the days after.
18: 一台译说的, 得到菜得, The protesters had nothing but bamboo sticks with cabbage knives on the ends, and the police had guns. So the protesters
7: rushed to where we are sitting now, the former Taiwan broadcasting station.
29: That's because they knew they needed to reach a wide audience, and the former Japanese occupiers had left them a powerful tool.
4: The
7: Japanese used Taiwan as a southernmost station to broadcast all their imperial front lines.
29: The Taiwanese convinced the station managers to give them access to the mics. And this is what they
8: broadcast.
29: You just heard Ong Tiang Tiang, a journalist and activist broadcast in the Taiwanese language, not Mandarin Chinese, sharing news of the protests. The Chinese Republic's response was swift and brutal. Chen Ying, the KMT-installed governor of Taiwan, issued a radio edict in Mandarin Chinese announcing martial law. (inaudible) An estimated 2,000 people were disappeared and executed in the weeks after, though various historians say the number is as high as 30,000 people. Ong, the original broadcaster, was arrested and was never seen again. Today, that radio station is a museum dedicated to remembering the victims and leaders of that resistance. But after those radio broadcasts, Taiwan spent nearly all of the next 40 years or so living under authoritarian KMT rule. February 28th was a huge tragedy because all knowledgeable people of the time were wiped out famous painters, opinion leaders were killed. That's Sumei Wong, a professor in the journalism department at Taipei's National Zhenzhi University. She says the KMT also knew the power of radio. They wanted to re-educate people and to teach them Mandarin. And so they used radio as a tool. But so did the opposition. Here's Cheryl Lai, the chairperson of Radio Taiwan International. They were
19: so many underground radio stations, almost um, 100, to launch all different protesting voices.
29: And a lot of these underground stations became Taiwan's first commercial radio stations in the 90s, when Taiwan democratized. That ruling party, the KMT, is still a major political party in Taiwan today. One of its leaders is Jiang Wanan, the new mayor of the island's capital, Taipei. He claims to be the illegitimate great-grandson and grandson of both KMT dictators who ruled Taiwan through much of its authoritarian history, a time many now call the White Terror. That's made today's anniversary especially uncomfortable. Here's Li shen whose grandfather was one of the victims.
31: Mayor of Taipei, what roles did your supposed great-grandfather and grandfather play during Taiwan's years of white terror? Were they the victims or were they the perpetrators?
29: These families want the mayor to admit that the ancestors, whose namesake he claims, were the main perpetrators of what's now called the 228 massacre. Every year, the Taipei mayor attends a 228 commemoration event. But this year, many of the families of those executed and disappeared in nineteen forty-seven say they're boycotting any event Major Wan an goes to. It's a reminder of just how contentious Taiwanese history and identity remain. Emily Fang and Pure News, Taipei, Taiwan.
0: This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, critics say a new election law in Mexico severely undermines democracy in the country. It's 820.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century, client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter, online at nutter.com. And the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective, with K-I-S-S-I-N-G, A funny date night play and love letter to our city starts Friday, org.
19: A pregnant woman in Texas was excited to be having twins and then found out one had a fatal condition. She needed to protect the other twin, but new abortion laws in the state meant her doctor only felt comfortable saying this to her.
21: You can't do anything in Texas and I can't tell you anything further in Texas, but you need to get out of state.
19: That story on
6: All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9
30: WBUR.
0: Snow for much of the day today. By the time it's over, we may see up to 4 inches around Boston and up to 6 inches around Worcester. Temperatures rise to the mid-30s, and late this afternoon, the snow may turn to rain in many areas. Tonight, low 30s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 44. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston at 821
2: Support for NPR comes from this station and from EBSCO, offering clinical decision support resources and tools, including disease and condition content from DynaMed and drug information from Meritiv. Learn more at DynaMedX.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally, learn more at ZQuil.com. And from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News, Ami Martinez.
10: And I'm Leila Faldel. Thousands of people marched in Mexico City over the weekend to protest a decision that would overhaul the country's independent body that oversees elections.
11: Protesters say the decision to reduce the National Electoral Institute's staff and independence is a threat to the country's democracy and could return Mexico to the days of one-party rule. Mexico's president says the reforms are about cutting costs.
10: Layla Miller is a correspondent for the LA Times, and she joins me from Mexico City. Good morning, Layla. Good morning, thanks for having me. So let's talk about these reforms. If you could just lay out
23: what they do and what people are worried about. Sure, these are reforms that were passed last week that would dramatically reduce the size of Mexico's electoral institute and would also remove a lot of autonomy that it has. It gets rid of, you know, what the officials from the Electoral Institute say that thousands of, of jobs of people that organize um, elections on the ground across the country would be removed. And what it also does is it removes the power that the Institute has to discipline candidates if they violate campaign finance laws. People are. Are basically worried about is that the electoral institute won't have the manpower to organize elections, and that this is essentially a a threat to Mexico's democracy.
10: What has the president, the government, said about why they're doing this? So
23: the president, um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has said the electoral agency needs budget cuts. Um, He's been, you know, pushing austerity measures across the board, across his his government. He's tried to discredit the people that are protesting by, you know, saying that these are people that have, you know, somehow benefited from corruption in the past and want to have a system in place that, that will benefit them that way. You know, there were thousands and thousands of people that were protesting this reform over the weekend. He's even tried to connect the protesters to uh, Gennaro Garcia Luna, the former top Mexican law and official that was recently convicted of, of taking bribes from drug traffickers in New York.
10: Just to clarify, he's trying to connect them to undermine the protests, saying that they're not legit protests?
23: Exactly. He's, he's saying that the protesters really don't care about democracy. This is not what, it, what this is about. He's saying that the protesters want to keep a corrupt system
10: in mm. place. And what concerns might the U.S. have about these changes, these election changes in Mexico?
23: U.S. officials have spoken out about the reform. They've been saying that the president is trying to sabotage democratic institutions. You know, there's a worry that changes like this could return Mexico back to the days when it was under a one-party system, when the same party was in power for decades because of corruption and because there wasn't a strong electoral institute.
10: Layla Miller is with the LA Times and she's based in Mexico City. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me.
11: Did you know Syracuse, New York, spends weeks celebrating St. Patrick's Day? So a bar there is going all in with green beer, 10,000 gallons of it. Eva Pukach is with member station WRVO. She visited the neighborhood where the celebration kicked off with the 60th annual Green Beer Sunday.
15: On a chilly Sunday morning, the line to enter Coleman's, an Irish pub in Tipperary Hill, stretches up the hill to the city's upside-down stoplight where proud Irish immigrants in the 1920s would break the light because they wanted their nationality on top of the British red. Thousands in a sea of green wearing kilts, four-leaf clover cowboy hats, and shamrock temporary tattoos celebrate by toasting with pitchers of beer. And it starts with a parade, with Irish dancers, bagpipes, and even a Miss Green beer. Those beeps are from a 10,000-gallon tanker truck filled with green beer. It's going to be sold until St. Patrick's Day.
7: I'm Michael Ryan, the Grand Marshal. This is my wife, Mary Kay.
15: Michael and Mary Kay Ryan met at Peter Coleman's pub 14 years ago. They celebrated their wedding there, and today they are the Grand marshals in the roughly two block long parade.
7: So when my dad was Grand marshal in 2006, he wore this very tie that Peter Coleman gave him with the green beers on it. And I only wore this once since then. I wore it at Peter Coleman's funeral. So it's a big tradition. It's a big honor for me to carry on my dad's tradition and Peter Coleman's tradition.
15: Peter Coleman invented the holiday. Because he always had to work St. Patrick's, he picked a Sunday to ring in the season with some friends. And each year, the event grew. His daughter Beth says this year the pub launched a beer in his memory. He is so with us in spirit, and I know he is smiling down on this, at this tradition. And it will, he'll always be with us. This will carry on. Gene Donor is a former Green Beer Sunday marshal and has been coming to Coleman's since 1957. It's unbelievable what this has turned into, and people from all over. I
6: mean, you know, not just the neighborhood, like it once was.
15: What are a few of your memories of the early green beer Sundays? I'm not quite sure we believed that the, it was green, real green beer, but um, we kinda like went along with Peter, knowing that he was out in the other room pouring food coloring in. As for what makes the beer green now, Michael Ryan won't say. Uh, that's a secret. <laughs> that's a Nobody secret. tells any of that.
27: <laughs> Only tanks. the leprechauns
29: can <laughs> tell you about that.
15: <laughs> As St. Patrick's Day approaches, Syracusans will continue to ring in the season with more parades, celebrations, and of course, green beer. Thank you so much. Thank happy you. Yes, green beer day. Happy beer. Happy beer. For NPR News, I'm Ava Pukach in Syracuse.
11: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Republicans and Democrats in Congress seem to agree on at least one issue, the threat from the Chinese government. A new committee with that focus launches today. It's 829. Stay on top of today's snowy forecast wherever you go. Listen with the WBUR mobile app to get the latest on the weather while you're on your way to work or just making a cup of coffee to stay warm
9: are funded by you, our listeners, and by Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community.
18: HabibARCH.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, is on a three-day state visit to China amid concerns that Beijing may soon provide support to Russia in its war with Ukraine. Mao Ning is a spokeswoman for China's foreign ministry. She's heard here through a BBC interpreter.
19: China and Belarus are all-weather comprehensive strategic partners. During President Lukashenko's visit to China, both sides will exchange in-depth views on cooperation in various fields.
18: Belarus is an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin. A vote is expected today by a House committee on whether to advance a bill that cracks down on TikTok. NPR's Giles Snyder says the Chinese-owned app continues to spark concerns about national security. The House Foreign
20: Affairs Committee is taking up a bill that would allow President Biden to ban the app. It was introduced by the committee's chairman, Republican Texas Congressman Michael McCall, who says that downloading TikTok is tantamount to putting a spy balloon on your phone. The American Civil Liberties Union says a ban would violate the free speech rights of millions of Americans.
18: Two months ago, President Biden signed legislation that bans TikTok on government-issued devices. Many states have similar bans, including Texas, Virginia, New Jersey, and Wisconsin. This is NPR News. From
0: WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It feels and looks like winter on this last day of February. Right now, it isn't too bad out there, but we'll be dealing with this snowstorm all day. Let's bring in WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce for more. Good morning. Good morning, Rupa. Can you tell us what's happening out there right now? Yeah. So
21: since we last talked a couple hours ago, I'd say, you know, uh, it's varying intensity of the snowfall. Like I live north of Boston. I have about an inch and a half on the ground and it's barely snowing right now, but about 20 minutes ago, it was coming down at a steady clip. So that will be the case through the rest of the day today. So it's kind of a long all day thing, but it's not like it comes down really heavily the entire day. It just kind of slowly adds up through the course of the afternoon. Um, It is cold through the interior. We're in the 20s from Worcester to Fitchburg up into southern New Hampshire. But Boston right now is actually 34 degrees with very light snowfall. So we've had a little bit of rain mixing in at times on Cape Cod. I do think that trend will continue this afternoon. We may even mix very briefly with a couple of raindrops later today in the city of Boston.
0: So can you say how much snow we should expect when it's all done? Have their totals changed?
21: They haven't really changed. I'm still expecting a widespread two to four inches for many of us. Although I will say I've been surprised by some of the numbers down in Connecticut and Rhode Island. Um, There's been a little bit of a steadier snow coming down there. So there have already been some four, five, six inch amounts. And that may be the case in a few areas Outside of 495, too, in the Worcester Hills and then through interior southeastern Massachusetts as well. Uh, The wind is a little gusty, but no big wind concerns, no big coastal concerns. This is just a pretty pretty kind of straight-up light snow that will fall through the course of the day today.
0: And then overnight?
21: Overnight, actually, the skies will gradually clear out. So the back edge should move in, I'd say, 7 to 9 p.m. Let's say about 8 p.m. in Boston, give or take. So that's when everything ends And then tonight, the temperature will be in the 20s to low 30s. So anything that's untreated will still be slippery and icy. And I think that's been the big story today, too. I've seen some images of, you know, totally snow-covered, sloppy roads, slushy roads, and then bare pavement on others. So. Very variable road conditions. Take it slow and easy out there. The snow is a little bit fluffier through the interior, so it's a little easier to move around. Um, You know, this isn't a major storm, but I think because this winter has been, you know, a little uh, deprived of snowfall, so to speak, uh, two to four inches at least is going to be a little bit uh, tough to move around later today the closer you get to the coastline.
0: And then low 40s tomorrow. At what point do we have to worry about refreezing and slick roads again? Um,
21: A little bit of icy stuff tonight into early tomorrow morning, but you're right. We jump into the 40s. So, you know, think sidewalks, driveways early tomorrow morning may be a little bit slick, but then we actually get some melting. We'll probably go into the mid 40s tomorrow afternoon. Actually, a late day rain shower comes in. That may last into Thursday morning. Thursday is going to be 45 to 50, believe it or not. And then we get some storminess that comes back for the end of the week.
0: Oh, 50 sounds so nice. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes, thank you very much. Thanks, Rupa. Get updates on Danielle's forecast all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. There's a new state council advising the government on issues of black... Empowerment. Governor Healy created the group yesterday. It's made up of 30 black leaders from across the state. Healy wants them to focus on issues related to the economic prosperity and well being of the state's black communities.
25: Helping advise us on what policies and levers we can use within our administration to address issues of racial disparities, which, you know, through COVID in particular, were only exacerbated for so many.
0: One of the co-chairs of the group is Tanisha Sullivan. She's the president of the Boston branch of the NAACP, and she wants to start this process with listening sessions around the state.
26: Yes, there are 30 or so folks who were brought to the table yesterday, but those will not be the only people around the table as we really dig in to ensure that we're doing all we can to include all of the communities across the Commonwealth in this work.
0: She hopes to get those listening sessions running by the spring. Despite the weather, Attleboro holds a special election today. Voters in the city will be picking a new mayor. Former Mayor Paul Hero stepped down to become the sheriff of Bristol County. The city of Northampton will pay tribute to some local heroes in a half shell. The city will spend $20,000 in federal pandemic relief money to create manhole covers featuring the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The famous cartoon crime fighters got their start in Northampton. It's where the co-creators first met in the early 1980s. It's 8.36.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work.
0: Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. The Bruins won their seventh straight game last night. They beat the Oilers 3-2 to in Edmonton. The Celtics lost to the Knicks 109-94 to last night in New York. And a recap of your weather. Snow, wind, patchy fog, and some rain this morning becoming all rain in some areas after about 3 p.m. It'll be in the 30s. Right now it's 30. 30- 5 degrees in Boston at
2: 8.36. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams, quotes, and information on customized insurance for specific risks, are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. This is NPR.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden in Washington, D.C.
11: And I'm Ame Martinez in Culver City, California. Fox News is defending itself against a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit over what was said on the air after the 2020 presidential election. And now some new insight from that lawsuit that some of the network's top stars endorsed the lie put forth by then President Trump and his allies that the election was stolen. A court filing says the chairman of Fox's parent company, Rupert Murdoch, acknowledged that under oath in a deposition. For more on that, NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. David, this is from a legal filing from Dominion Voting Systems, which is suing Fox for defamation. So according to Dominion, what else did uh, Rupert Murdoch say under
5: oath? Well, Murdoch made this concession that these hosts had not just uh, been covering the lies and false claims of then-President Trump and his surrogates, his allies, uh, but were actually embracing them. That was a pretty big deal. He also said, you know, he was asked under oath, uh, could he have told Fox News's chief executives or its stars to stop giving airtime to people like Rudy Giuliani, who was a key Trump campaign attorney peddling election lies? And Murdoch said, I could have but i didn't so right there you have him acknowledging that his own people are endorsing these lies uh people including uh maria bartiromo lou dobbs janine perro to a bit as he put it uh, sean hannity but also that he could have intervened and didn't do so murdoch is a very powerful man i mean he's the boss there what he says goes so why did he allow this even if he knew it was wrong well There are two reasons, one of which is that Fox really alienated like deeply a lot of pro-Trump voters, which is to say core Fox viewers, when it was the first TV network to call the key state of Arizona for Joe Biden, which pretty much cast the die against Donald Trump on election night in 2020. And his executives were making the case that they had to be um, delicate in turning away from Trump uh, because they had so severely severed the bonds. So at one point, for example, in uh, he's responding to concerns by a, a Fox Corporation board member uh, about the need to basically break with Trump. And he said to tell his son Lachlan, who's also a top person at Fox, you know, tell her that Fox News is pivoting as fast as possible. We have to lead our viewers, which is not as easy as it might seem. That is, they want to keep faith. The second reason, you know, under oath, he was asked, you know, why take uh, money from the founder of My Pillow, which was a significant Fox advertiser who was also a major propagator of lies on behalf of President Trump? He said... I- You know, Rupert Murdoch had told Dominion's attorneys, I'm not about to stop taking money from them. An attorney for Dominion suggested it's not about red or blue, it's green, meaning money. Murdoch agreed. So how damaging is Murdoch's testimony to Fox's defense? Well, you know... There's a very high bar in defamation cases uh, in terms of proving uh, that you either knew that something was untrue and damaging and put it on the air or that you were willfully disregarding the facts. Murdoch clearly, by all of the evidence, knew that the election lies were false. And in addition, you know, it's showing that there's a motivation, uh, that that money was the reason that they didn't want to alienate their, their audience by telling them the truth.
11: One more thing quickly. Uh, how does Fox say uh, Murdoch's being portrayed?
5: They're saying this is uh, this entire case and the weight of the argument, first off, hasn't proved that the 115 individual alleged defamatory claims are truly meet that high bar. And secondly, they're saying that this is going to have an incredible chilling effect on the ability of journalists, not just at Fox, but at places like NPR, The New York Times and elsewhere to cover even outrageous claims made by inherently newsworthy people. They say a sitting president like then President Donald Trump is perhaps the most newsworthy person of all.
11: Okay. NPR's David Folkenflik. Thanks, David. You bet.
10: Congress enjoys a rare bipartisan moment today when lawmakers come together
4: to address China. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher chairs a new House committee created to put a spotlight on the threats posed by China. He says a recent news story made that job a little easier.
1: A Chinese spy balloon drifting over the country Encircling circling our, our nuclear ICBM facilities, has a way of bringing the threat close to home.
4: Illinois Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, the top Democrat on the panel, says his constituents already feel the impact of China's influence.
13: Everyone seems to have their own stories, whether they are a small business person or whether they're concerned about the crackdown on dissent or human rights.
4: Both lawmakers want to lay out the economic and national security threats posed by China for the American people. One area they agree on is banning the social media platform TikTok from operating in the U.S. They're concerned the app is taking users' data and its parent company has ties to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Gallagher worries about what that means for Americans.
1: It can be used to influence the news, what people see and talk about, and therefore to interfere in our society and our politics and our very democracy.
4: The looming threat from China on America's economy spurred Congress to act last year, passing a bill investing more than $50 billion for U.S. manufacturers to boost semiconductor production. President Biden noted at the summer bill signing that the U.S. went from pioneering the technology to only producing 10% of the supply of these critical building blocks of consumer products like cars and cell phones. But he argued now...
20: We are better positioned than any any other nation in the world to win the economic competition of the 21st century.
4: Lawmakers say the use of a surveillance balloon by China only reinforces the need for a comprehensive security plan.
20: The rest of the century will be defined by what happens between the United States and China.
4: That's Florida Senator Marco Rubio, the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee.
20: This is not just a military challenge. China has fused its commercial, military, technological applications in ways no other nation ever has. So um, it's a multifaceted challenge.
4: Part of that challenge is also increased China aggression over Taiwan, an island democracy that governs itself, but that China claims as its territory. The U.S. has its own relationship with Taiwan, deep trade ties, and it supplies weapons to them. Here's Krishnamurthy again.
13: We want to do everything we can to help Taiwan deter or prevent aggression by the CCP. We don't want open hostilities to break out in that part of the world, which could lead to very severe consequences for the region.
4: In terms of domestic policies Congress could zero in on this year, Krishnamoorthy says it's important to focus on skills training for U.S. workers to be competitive in fields like robotics and artificial intelligence. He also says the U.S. immigration system penalizes those who come to innovate but are forced to leave because they can't get visas.
13: This is the U.S. shooting itself in the foot repeatedly on immigration. And now it has real world consequences when adversarial regimes take advantage of our weaknesses and it
4: comes back to haunt us. For now, both Democrats and Republicans say there's an opportunity to lay the groundwork and come up with new policies on workforce training, immigration and education that would help the U.S. compete with China. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington.
6: This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com.
0: Coming up on Morning Edition, warmer winters may mean that ticks are now a year-round threat in New England. In your forecast, snow all day today. Watch out for slick spots on the road. Two to four inches in all expected in eastern mass. One to two on the Cape, four to six around Worcester. The snow is mixing with rain in some areas and could become all rain late this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the mid-30s. Patchy fog, cloudy and low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, 40s with a chance of rain in the late afternoon. It's 35 degrees in Boston at 846.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. And Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden.
9: And I'm A. Martinez.
10: Milder
11: winters in the Northeast are making deer ticks more active at a time when they're usually dormant. Experts are calling that a growing public health threat. Here's Connecticut Public Radio's Michaela Savitt.
31: Deer ticks are tiny. They bite thousands of people every year in New England. The species can pass on Lyme disease and other sicknesses, which can be very serious. Dr. Tony Lynn Morelli is with the Northeast Climate Adaptation Science Center. While 40 degrees doesn't feel warm, she says that's when adult deer ticks will seek hosts in winter. We can think about being careful when the kids go outside to check for ticks when they come back in in certain months of the year. It's becoming a year-round check-yourself-for-ticks situation. The Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station in New Haven helps people learn whether a deer tick bite gave them a disease. Entomology department head Dr. Gouders-Molloy says 275 tick samples have come in since December 1st, much more than past winters. He opens one of the envelopes, mailed into the lab. Molloy pulls out a tick so swollen it's almost unrecognizable. He says it might have fed for several days, making it more likely to transmit an infection.
17: This is a fully engorged tick. It's a tick of concern and we will proceed with that.
31: Research technician Noelle Khalil tests to see if the adult female tick carried Lyme, anaplasmosis, or another tick-borne disease. She mixes it with liquids in a vial, then shakes it to break up tissue before it goes in a centrifuge.
1: It's going to spin all this debris you see to the bottom.
31: Results take a few days to come back after more steps in a PCR test. Centers for Disease Control data show Lyme disease rates have been steadily increasing in the U.S., New England states have seen the biggest increase of cases and overall rate of infection. Dr. Megan Linsky is another scientist at the lab. She ties this to the warming climate.
15: Everybody's looking for the scapegoat when it comes to vector-borne diseases and ticks and tick-borne diseases, and I think climate change is a big one. New England temperatures are rising faster than the
31: world average, and the largest temperature increases are happening during winter. Linsky says that could lead to more native and non-native ticks.
4: And without that limiting factor
15: of winter, we're going to see more of those pop up and we're going to see more of them establish in the Northeast as well.
31: Chantal Foster is an avid hiker from central Connecticut and no stranger to ticks. Her dog has had Lyme disease before and recovered, but Foster hasn't had it. Just this February, she had to pick ticks off her dog after two hikes. She's careful that neither of them get bitten you're just
30: paying attention to what you're doing. You should be okay. It's not to say that it can't happen, but I'm not going to not go outside.
31: Dr. Linsky with the Tick Lab says while they research how to manage tick populations, people in the Northeast must learn to coexist with them year-round. That includes avoiding brushy wooded areas and tall grass and doing a full body check of people and pets after being outdoors. For NPR News, I'm Michaela Savitt in New Haven, Connecticut.
11: Later today on All Things Considered, home ownership can be a family's biggest source of wealth, but homes in black and Latino majority neighborhoods are often undervalued. Could more diversity among real estate appraisers change that? Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your smart speaker, your computer, or on your reliable radio. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy e Martinez.
0: And I'm Layla Faldin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report breaks down the arguments the Supreme Court will hear today as it takes up President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. And later today at noon is Here and Now, and Scott Tong is on the line to tell us what's on, what's on the show. Hi there, Scott.
14: Hey, Rupa. Good morning from Washington, D.C. Um, you know how big ideas in society and policies sometimes get nudged along with the help of big money. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking climate change denial or decades of doubt about smoking and cancer. You know, sometimes industries can supersize these ideas. Well, one person in this space is historian Naomi Oreskes of Harvard, up by you, and she's the author of a book called Merchants of Doubt, this kind of manufacturing of doubt in public conversation. She has a new book out, and we're going to talk to her about it. It's called The Big Myth, about what she calls free market absolutism. She's not questioning that market forces matter, but she tells a history of how business groups were behind this. You know, GE with this TV show starring Ronald Reagan, the Manufacturer's Lobby, which was against child labor laws, helping to bolster this narrative. So we're going to take a long conversation with her and uh, a little cameo from the Little House on the Prairie books. I don't know if you were a fan of those. Oh, yes. And TV show, definitely. Yep. That's today.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Scott. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 852.
27: I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, when Amy Carnevale took over the Massachusetts Republican Party, she was not expecting more than $600,000 in unpaid bills, rebuilding a party in financial distress and one that lost last year's governor's race by nearly 30 points. Amy Carnevale joins us. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR.
20: Have you ever looked for an angle to play, a system to your benefit? Well, sounds like you too are a hacker. We'll have an interview in a few minutes.
6: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at
20: paloaltonetworks.com. I'm David Brancaccio. First, the Supreme Court will hear arguments today on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. The case will ultimately decide whether about 43 million people get some or all of their federal student loans canceled. At issue is, does the person in the Oval Office have the power to, in this case, cancel 10,000 or 20,000 in student debt? Marketplace's Samantha Fields reports.
19: It's been six months since President Biden made this much-anticipated announcement.
20: We will forgive. $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. But
19: almost as soon as he made that promise, legal challenges started cropping up from Republican-led states and a couple of borrowers. Now, it's up to the Supreme Court whether the more than 40 million people who would qualify for this debt cancellation will get it.
1: We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars in relief.
19: Adam Minsky is an attorney who works with student loan borrowers.
1: Many of those borrowers would become completely debt-free. Others could have half or more of their balance completely wiped out.
19: In other words, this is a big deal for a lot of people. Even people who have much larger balances, They're still equally as worried, I think, as people who know that they're going to get their total debt wiped out. Jane Fox is an attorney at the Legal Aid Society in New York. It's really about the larger principle of can we cancel student debt under what legal authority can we do it? Whatever happens with this case, Betsy Mayotte at the nonprofit Institute of Student Loan Advisors likes to remind people who are anxious about their debt.
22: There are a multitude of lower payment options available on federal
27: student loans.
19: She says all the focus on broad student loan relief has overshadowed a lot of other major changes the administration has made to the student loan program.
22: That has really taken the pressure off some of the most vulnerable borrowers, like totally and permanently disabled, students that were defrauded by their schools, borrowers pursuing public service loan forgiveness.
19: Some of those changes, she says, may ultimately provide even more relief for people than the ten dollars to $20,000 of forgiveness currently before the Supreme Court. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace.
20: Stock index futures have flattened ahead of the opening bell here. S&P futures are up by less than a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures are now little changed. And here's another number, 37%. That's the increase in violations of child labor laws last year in the U.S. compared to a year earlier. As employers look for ways to keep costs down in a tight labor market, the Financial Times reports on this today, with government data showing 3,900 cases confirmed, often about under 18s getting assigned overnight shifts. This month, a meatpacking place in Wisconsin paid a fine for using more than 113 to 17-year-olds to clean the plant overnight.
6: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the Slowdown Podcast. Join award-winning poet Major Jackson, the newest host of the Slowdown, for a hand-picked poem and a moment
20: of reflection every weekday. Now to our culture of hacking. Hackers are widespread and may not be who you're visualizing right now. Let's talk to Bruce Schneier, whose new book is called A Hacker's Mind. Mr. Schneier, good morning. Good morning. All right. Actor Rami Malek in a hoodie, sneaking into computer networks equals hacker. It's like you should see his image if you looked it up in the dictionary, hacker. But you think of hacking much more broadly. It's almost a a way of thinking.
32: It really is a way of thinking. And actually, a hack follows the letter of the rule, even though it subverts the intent. You see rich people find tax loopholes. Companies do it. Think of the way Uber is subverting the rules for taxis. They're not breaking the rules, but they're finding loopholes, they're finding emissions, they're finding technicalities to subvert the rules to their advantage.
20: And, Bruce, you write about this. It's an issue when you're worried about inequality in society, right? Because already powerful, already wealthy people often have access to tools. Sometimes they're tools in the form of good lawyers who can help with the hacks.
32: This is where hacks diverge in the computer world and the real world. In the computer world, we have that vision of hacks being antisocial kids in hoodies. In the real world, they're more likely to be the rich and powerful. They're more likely to employ expertise to find the hacks and then when they find one employ attorneys to make sure those are considered legal and they're
20: not patched. Now this has been the winter of artificial intelligence at least as a cultural moment and you make an interesting point in the book AI can do hacking if there are not protections built in but also AI could be hacked.
32: So certainly AI's are computer systems and they can be hacked. There's a lot of research in how AI systems can be abused. What I'm writing about is the other way. Can an AI be used to find hacks? So imagine feeding an AI the entire nation's tax codes. What AI could do is just change the speed, scale, scope, and complexity of this process and suddenly we're finding loopholes that are far more complex than humans can find, and our prevention mechanisms, our recovery mechanisms are still at human speeds. But the notion that we need to be able to to patch, to update our laws as technology changes, as situations change, is really important.
20: You also argue that transparency has to be a key part of this, and a lot of, for instance, AI is quite opaque in its processes. But tell me about inclusivity. That's also one of the important words that you highlight when you think about remedies for hacking?
32: I mean, the the worry about AI is less the AI and more that Google owns it, Microsoft owns it, Amazon owns it. It's the already powerful using it against us. So one of the things we need to do, aside from transparency, is to democratize these technologies. If they become inclusive, they become tools of the citizen against power rather than tools of
20: the powerful. Bruce Schneier has often been called a security guru. He certainly knows about security technology. His latest book is A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend a Mac. Mr. Schneier, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Our producers are James Graham, Ollie Dalbert Hansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producers, Meredith Gerritsen-Morby. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report from 8 american public media
0: snow is falling across the region we may get two to four inches in eastern massachusetts four to six around worcester mid-30s today the snow may turn to rain in some areas late this afternoon right now it's 35 degrees in boston we're coming up on nine o'clock and the bbc is next
30: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Elliott Community Human Services, providing recovery-oriented care for those with behavioral health and substance needs with evidence-based treatment. ElliottCHS.org.
20: I'm On Point Executive Producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.